0: don't let another challenging conversation leave you second guessing. Click the link in the description to discover how we can help you find confidence in conflict, negotiate better deals, and have stronger relationships. Because in the world of business, every conversation counts. And now, without further ado, let's jump into the interview. David, thanks for joining us today. Man, I'm so happy to be here. This is really cool. How would you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself
1: and what you do? Sure. I'm a, a science journalist, author, person who makes things that you can consume on the internet. Uh, I'm in that category of people. I have a podcast called You Are Not So Smart and uh, a couple of previous books, You Are Not So Smart, You're Now Less Dumb, and um, this latest book, How Minds Change. So, I typically write about psychology, neuroscience, social science, political science, basically brains, minds, culture, that sort of thing. And... uh that's just what i do
0: okay so i i have to ask now so with the, the name of your podcast what inspired the name of the podcast
1: <laughs> i it's a it was such a security, uh byzantine uh story the um i was i went to school for, for psychology i switched to journalism at some point and i had gotten into a place where i was no longer writing uh The stuff that i got into journalism for i moved up in the world and was teaching people how to operate uh, the back end of social media and that sort of thing as a social media guru person in uh, television news and i really missed writing for a living i really missed writing in general and i'd got into a um a number of arguments with friends about different things or just long road trip type things where I would bring stuff out of psychology, the things that I was most interested in. Um, It was always dealing with reasoning, decision-making, especially studies like the one where you have somebody on a college campus ask for directions. And then the person who's talking to them, somebody steps between and they switch places. And usually they're, they're holding up like a big sign or something. And that obscures the switch. And then the person just keeps giving directions to this new individual, and then on the back end, they ask, "Did you notice the change?" and and about half the time, people don't notice. And I just all of that stuff was very fascinating to me. And I thought about it would be neat to start a uh, blog about it. And I was in those days of starting a, of having blogs being a thing uh, that people would do and start. And I did that, and it was going okay. Uh, Just a small audience. But then I got into an argument with my friends about which was better, the PlayStation 3 or the Xbox 360. And we got to that level of argument where it felt like maybe we'll never talk to each other ever again. And I was so fascinated by how emotional we got, how angry we got. And I just had access to uh, the university library. I pulled all the research into identity, brand identity, uh, the brand loyalty, and I wrote a post about it. And that was, what kicked off my entire career in this world because that went viral and I eventually got a book deal out of it. The idea of the blog, I wanted a title for talking about this type of content and I attribute 85% of my early success to just having the, a title that nobody had taken yet because you are not so smart that feels like you're being insulted by this inanimate thing. Uh, and then you you get into it, And the, but the writing style was never like that. The writing style was very unity through humility. The you I'm talking about is also me. It's all of us. And the title came from, uh, I think it was John Stewart. He kept doing it as a punchline or as a, a side. He'd be like, eh, not so much. And I just thought you are eh, not so smart would be a good title for something. And it ended up being a great title. Uh, and it's carried me all the way through now.
0: This is great. I, I love that. I love that for a number of reasons. So, like we mentioned beforehand, and the listeners probably know this by now because I say it proudly on like every episode of this podcast. So people think I get into negotiation because of my time as a mediator, my time practicing law and things like that. But really, it's the the this love of psychology that got gets me there. I love mm-hmm. this. And when people ask, well, what why do you like psychology? I say humans are fascinating to me because I think we're the only animal that can regularly overestimate how smart we really are. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's great. And and the fact that we don't realize just that we are not as smart as we think we are, um, it makes people ripe for persuasion. And we have to understand that about ourselves and for others too. Because once you come to that that humble realization, it's like, oh, uh, you know, my my brain has some fault, like some faulty parts of it. Like this is just the one of the beautifully imperfect things about humanity and that's okay i can treat myself with a little bit of grace i can treat others with a little bit of grace and i don't overestimate um what can be achieved in these conversations mm-hmm. you know and so i really love this because again that common understanding that humility i think that's really really powerful
1: yeah yeah if, if there were like two principles if you're not so smart it's you're unaware of how unaware you are because i love that in those studies like the person switching study the people were very adamant, no, that did not happen. Like and if they had never been debriefed, they would have never known for the rest of their lives that that had taken place. So I love that aspect of it. You're unaware of how unaware you are, which leads to you are the unreliable narrator in the story of your life. And so those two principles are the the twin pistons of my obsession in this space because I felt like if it was true for that study, it was probably true in so many other domains. And it's it's the undeserved confidence in our our perceptions and our thoughts, feelings and memories, uh, even in, in our you know emotional responses to things that all became deeply, deeply fascinating. And in, it also feel, makes me feel more connected to the shared family of humanity in that this is something that we all experience, whether or not you realize it. And I find that really compelling
0: absolutely absolutely so so let's make a a tiny shift in the conversation to talk about how minds change because mm-hmm. when you think about the um our purpose of the podcast we define negotiation very broadly anytime you're having a conversation and somebody wants something it's a negotiation so <laughs> really every single human interaction you see how i'm slowly bringing us back to psychology with this No, that's great um it this is this is our our, our motto this is our approach would negotiate anything and so a key a part of, of this process for us to understand in order to for us to become more effective negotiators, um, better in our relationships, better communicators in general, is understanding how minds change. Yeah. And, you know, as psychology nerds here, I, I mean, that is... Almost overwhelming. Like, where do we begin with this? <laughs> yes, it is. Believe
1: me, many times in writing this book, I considered, you know, maybe I'll just go in the woods and make canoes. Uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll just start a pancake YouTube channel where I tell you about all the pancakes of the world. Because you very quickly just the phrase "how minds change." I thought, you know, I thought this would be a project where I look into the literature. I spice it up. I make it easier for you to understand, get some jokes in there, and then tell you what I read. It's a pop psychology book. It is not that. It, it, it ended up being a, almost six years of work. It was, It's almost all on the ground. I visit Westboro Baptist Church. I visit uh, people who've left cults and left the conspiratorial communities. I actually spend time with the scientists. I go to activist groups. Like I, And the reason it went like that is because I... The very first question I had was just, what does the phrase mean? How minds change. And as soon as you start trying to unravel that, you're like, well, well then what is a mind? What does it mean to change your mind? And I'm like, oh, wait, there's 2000 years of philosophy. Uh, and if there are books in philosophy about every word in that sentence, there are 200 books in philosophy about every word in that sentence. So that's that's already daunting. I was like, well, let me just talk to one scientist. And I, and I talked to Jim Alcock, who studies belief. And he had been studying it for forty-five years, and I remember this being the inciting moment of how the book actually turned out, which was I—I I was like, okay, old journalist trick. What is a belief? Just pretend I'm five years old and explain it to me very simply. And he just leaned back in his chair, and went, oh yeah, that's a tough one. And I, and I was I could I, I felt my bones turn to ice because I was like, no, no 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 you can't say that's tough. You're the guy who studies belief, and I I asked him why was it hard, and he he. said, because I've been studying this for 45 years, I can't give you a single definition of this word belief. And that's when I knew it couldn't be the kind of book I thought it was going to be. And instead, I changed direction and said, okay, I will go spend time with people who have changed their minds in drastic ways. And people who have left cults, pseudo cults, religious communities, ideologies, conspiracy communities, and so on. And then I will take what they their stories and take what they tell me and I'll take that back to researchers and say, what do you see here? And that ended up actually opening up all these doors to, oh, I didn't even know the question I was actually asking. Like I had sold an idea for a book, but I had the actual book that I was going to write was nothing like I had imagined it would be. And so I ended up going into how how minds change, but also what why they resist and all sorts of things related to group psychology and Eventually, about page 200, we get into straight hardcore persuasion because the most uh, the most surprising thing in the whole process was I found all these different groups, street epistemology and deep canvassing and smart politics and so on. And then also I found therapeutic communities like motivational interviewing, cognitive behavioral therapy and so on. All of these different groups, most of them were not aware of each other. If they weren't scientists, they weren't even aware of the science underlying what they were underpinning what they were doing. Yet they all had the exact same techniques, basically. It was the techniques even were in the same order if they were listed out in bullet points. And I was like, this is something. This is something I did not expect and didn't know about. It felt like if someone was building an airplane for the first time, like the very first airplane, it didn't matter where they were going to build that on earth. It didn't matter who did it. It was going to end up looking like an airplane because you're dealing with the same forces at play, the same physics, the same you know all the, it's this is what an airplane has looked like on earth for it to fly. And I found that was true of the persuasion techniques as well. These are the persuasion taking. This is what will work because brains work in a certain way. And then I want to understand, well, okay, then why is that so? And I was able to fall into all sorts of neat stuff we could talk about, like from the interactions model, the truth wins model to just neurons and so on. So, yeah, I come to you with, wow, what a weird project I didn't expect I was going to get into. And I learned more about, um, like, I changed my mind about how minds change in putting this thing together. Because I do remember, like, before – before I started this project, I I years ago, I was I was at a doing a lecture, and after the lecture, someone came up to me and she asked I have my father has fallen into a conspiracy theory. How do I get him out of it? And I remember telling her, You he can't. And that was my position back at that time. And I deeply regret that. I feel very ashamed of it. I I but I knew as the advice was coming out of me that I didn't know enough about. This topic to give that kind of advice, and there was a pessimism and cynicism that unnerved me, and that was part of what got me interested in this topic because I've already had a podcast about it. I could ask some experts and then at the same time, the beliefs and norms around same-sex marriage in the United States around the time that, that she asked that question flipped very dramatically. About And when I looked at the polling at the time, 60% of the United States were, they were against it. And then within three or four years, they were in favor of it. Of course, there's a longer timeline there, especially if you've been involved in the activism, it's much longer. But as far as polling was concerned, it was the fastest flip in public opinion ever recorded at that point. And I was like, clearly there are forces here at play that I'd like to understand. And that's what got me into the entire topic. I don't know if I answered any questions there, but I wanted to sort of lay some of the groundwork for you.
0: Hello, my friends. Before we get back to today's episode, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever wondered how to elevate your team's negotiation game and how you can help the folks on your team have better, difficult conversations? At the American Negotiation Institute, we offer transformative keynotes and workshops tailored to empower professionals with top-tier negotiation and conflict resolution skills. Whether it's a keynote for your next event or hands-on training for your team, we've got you covered. Don't just negotiate master the art with the American Negotiation Institute. Click the link in the description to find out more. Elevate, negotiate, and succeed. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee quite simply isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan
1: CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today.
0: Oh, this is fascinating. It's so fascinating. a number of things kind of stand out in in your response you talked about pancakes and you talked about cults two things that I'm fascinated with and <laughs> there's so... gotta be a there's gotta be a
1: pancake cult out
0: there I, listen if I let's start it if there isn't one so yeah this is it's funny it, I haven't told anybody this but a couple of Saturdays ago um when I was I was making pancakes for my family Saturday morning and I wanted something to entertain myself and you know being who I am I said I wonder about the psychology of cults and I was just looking into it because I think about the like the ultimate persuasion that that's got to be it persuading somebody to join a cult and then persuading somebody to get out so I wanted to get into that and so it's in really interesting that this is that's something that you focused on too mm-hmm. and I in my my book that's coming out I, I quote uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson where he says um I, I'm going to butcher the quote but he says you know whenever you add humans to the equation things go non-linear And that's why physics is easy and sociology is hard Mm -hmm. because when you put people in there, everybody's unique. And then it's hard to understand what, why communicating and trying to persuade somebody in this way for this person works, but for this person, it doesn't work. But Mm -hmm. what I find that's so cool about what you've discovered after this year, these years of research is that you found communities that didn't know of each other that have found a sequence to persuasion and influence and changing minds that matches each other, even if though, even though they are, different in terms of objective, in terms of ideology and location, but there's still that commonality. And I I just want to really impress upon the listeners how important and how remarkable that is. Because whenever we start with the psychology and we can identify essentially the psychological blueprint that's at play in these interactions, then we could reverse engineer negotiation and communication strategies Mm -hmm. to solve the problems that we're facing. So starting off with the psychology is so critical and then moving to how to change I, this is this is great. So yeah, I, yeah. I guess to, to make it really practical for the listeners, when we when we talk about this sequence to persuasion, what are some of those commonalities that you found?
1: Sure, let me set it up by a couple of psychological principles that I think are important. One is the uh, how do minds change in general. Uh, the The framework I prefer is something out of the old research of Jean Piaget. Uh, the, it's called assimilation and accommodation. Assimilation is whenever we encounter novel ambiguous uncertain information we will try to fit that model into fit that information into an existing model to make sense of it to give it context and that's assimilation whereas accommodation is acknowledging that the novelty and the ambiguity uh, can't be resolved perfectly which suggests there's something incomplete or incorrect in this in the models we've been using to make sense of things and it needs to expand to accommodate a good way to see to make sense of this with something that's not so full of psychological terminology is when a child sees a dog for the first time you you know it asks what is that or you're having a conversation like you would have with a child who say yeah dog 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 and then something happens in their mind that's very categorical uh non-human furry Walks on four legs, tail. These are all things that seem to say these are these are perceptual groundwork for this is the category that I'm trying to make for this this thing I'm experiencing. Later on, though, they might see a horse and they would. And I've had a lot of children do stuff like this. They'll point out and go dog. But if if they're very advanced, they might be like big dog. So what's it? Happening there is an attempted at assimilation. This seems to fit the category I already have. Non-human, walks on four legs, furry tail, seems like dog. And if you say, no, 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 that's a horse, the child must create a new category in which both the dog and the horse can fit. And there's going to be something, even if they haven't quite articulated it, it'll be something along the lines of creature or animal. So, they literally must expand their mind to accommodate okay, we need a new category to fit these multidimensional things of experience. So you and I are doing this in this conversation. Everyone's doing this at all times. Every time we encounter anything new, we assimilate and accommodate back and forth, back and forth. And that's the engine of how minds change. After a certain point, though, after doing this for a while, we would much rather assimilate than accommodate if we can get away with it. Because our models become so mm-hmm. complex, it's easy to find a way to interpret just about anything as another example of what I already understand. And you'd have to be something really outlandish for you to feel like, oh, I have to accommodate here you you open the door to your to your house and there's just a, a bunch of uh, uh snakes playing in a marching band and going around in your in your in your living room you're gonna be like okay i don't i clearly don't understand the world like i thought i understood it but you would of course attempt to assimilate it first you'd be like okay somebody's playing a trick of me this might be a hologram uh maybe i took maybe i'm having a hallucination there's all these things that fit into your previous understanding of the world But if you're denied that over and over again, you eventually have to accommodate. So this means that when we already have a built-in level of resistance when it comes to if there's a someone out there who's it's not coming in through our perception, but it's another human being who is suggesting, okay, here's how things actually work. Your model is incomplete or incorrect. We have a built-in level of resistance to that because we're going to try to assimilate what they're telling us. We're going to try to fit it into our existing understanding, and that resistance gets stronger and stronger and more and more intense, the more motivations we carry with us to not update our understanding. And the strongest motivation you're going to have is to not be ostracized or shamed by your most trusted peers, because we're social primates. And as the great Brooke Harrington, a sociologist told me in when I was researching the book, she said, if there was an e equals MC square of social science, it would be the fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. So when we feel like our reputation is on the line, our status is on the line, our, our our image is a trustworthy individual among peers. When that's on the line, it's the strongest motivation we'll have is to maintain that. And in the end, we'd rather be a good member of our group than would be correct, quote unquote, on anything. So you're dealing with many levels of resistance, and there's a baseline resistance in there and when these persuasion models that we were talking about come into play this is something they all acknowledge up front and that's why the step one of every single one of them is establish rapport and it's a really easy catch-all phrase it's a very suitcase term where you know you open it up and the clothes explode everywhere because there's a lot in that but the idea here is you need to assure the other person that you are not out to shame them even if you you privately and correctly feel like you should be ashamed. <laughs> like you, you really, you are, you are wrong factually, morally, politically. And, and, you know, this, even if you feel those things and that's totally okay. There are many things that we would like to change people's minds about where, yeah, you, you are, you're doing, you're putting harm in the world, but if you communicate to that person that they should be ashamed for what they think and feel it's over the community, the, the persuasion attempt is fa- will fail because they will respond with something. I'm sure your audience is familiar with with reactants, and there's a huge body of research into reactants. It's a, one of the most fundamental things you learn when you're training to be a therapist. The you put you you push, they push back. You push back harder, they push back harder. Feedback loop, it's over. And you, we, I'm sure we've all experienced that. Uh, if you've ever been a teenager or talked to a teenager, <laughs> <laughs> you know what reactants is, which is, hey, you should do this because i want you to do this is the way is the other part of the phrase that that you may not say but that's what they hear you should and that's true when you're trying to change someone's mind you should think this because i want you to think this is what is on the other side of that you should change your mind because i want you to change your mind you're you should uh believe this fact because i want you to believe this fact it comes into the neg- negotiation frame because you're suggesting that you want something and you're not asking them what they want and reactance emerges from that because we are uh very as social primates we're very concerned with agency we're very concerned with being uh being put into a corner where we're not able to pick and choose and think and feel as we as we would with our own volition and it's very easy to generate that and on top of it is this feeling of i better not say think or feel something that's going to ostracize me it's going to get me kicked out of my group and so the establishing rapport phase is very important. Stage one is establish rapport. And I think if you wanted to get out of all that psychological terminology and say, okay, but how could I think about how that would work in a way that makes sense to me in a one-to-one interactions and so on. Like uh, you're watching uh, a movie and you're like, this is pretty good. Like it's uh, like top, you're watching Top Gun Maverick and you can't wait to get out and talk to the other person. And when you get out of the movie theater, you're like, what do you think? And they're like, oh, that was a piece of shit. And you're like, oh, oh no. And you have that a feeling. Hmm. I was totally sure that I saw this, the way I saw it was the way to see it. Now I have another person who sees it a different way. And when you have rapport established with someone, they, you don't feel the reactance feeling of, okay, I need to demolish my friend. I need to destroy them in every way and show them that they're wrong. And they don't feel that way about you either. What you instead feel is like, oh, what? Do, why did you think that? What do you feel about it? And then they'll ask you the same thing. And you start to merge a little bit and Venn diagram a little bit because you're inclination when you're when you have a rapport established with someone is i don't want to face off with you i want to go shoulder to shoulder with you and look at it together and that's what you're trying to encourage in that first step is hey i respect you i think you're a smart capable human being we may disagree on this but i'm interested in why we disagree i'm not actually interested in changing you or myself in any way pointedly i i What I'm curious about is, like, how can we both be smart people who care about this issue, but we don't see it the same way? And I wonder if you'd be interested in exploring that with me. That's the first step. And that's the most important step.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. And it's so funny because we... When you think about the, the the psychological language and the research that we we're talking about and everything, it's so fascinating that it all comes down to build rapport, which seems so simple or simplistic in terms of understanding the uh, like what the first step is. But then, when you get an uh, an opportunity to listen to an expert like you explain the psychology behind what makes this such an integral part of every persuasion endeavor, it makes so much more sense and changes the way that we do it because i think a lot of times people say all right i read a million books they said i should build rapport okay i'll build rapport i'm going to check my box it's essentially perfunctory but Mm -hmm. now we're saying no i need to do this with intentionality i need to do this with the goal of the person seeing me walking side by side along this learning journey with me so we can learn about each other we can we can empathize and that empathy is reciprocated Mm -hmm. and i want them to feel as though we're connected and on the same team and Mm -hmm. understanding the psychology that substantiates the value of rapport changes the way that you go about building rapport
1: absolutely and i totally understand for certain issues this is this seems like oh yeah cool i want to be a good empathetic non-judgmental listener that's great we all i I can i know for some issues it's so easy but for the from the people that i learned this from initially deep canvassing these were people in the lgbtq community who were going door-to-door talking to people who hated them who wanted to take away their rights to prevent them from having rights. And they had to accept something which was difficult for them to accept. And I see this as being very difficult for almost everyone who first approaches these techniques for a lot of the things we care about in this world, things that matter to us, the people whose minds we want to change are people who we don't want to afford that empathy. And it's very difficult. I totally understand. Like there are people who I can't imagine uh, extending a hand to him and saying, I see you as a fellow human being, even though we disagree, when the issue we disagree about is my own humanity, or the issue we disagree about is the harm that you're causing me and my family. But if your intention is to change their mind, it, the, the jagged pill here is you must establish a rapport where you don't generate reactants and push them away, or you won't get the opportunity to, to do step two, three, four, five, six. And that was something that was very difficult for them to do as well. And they developed their technique through going door to door and asking people, why did you vote against this issue? Why did you vote for this issue? And what they were surprised to learn was even when the person on the other side knew that the person they were speaking with was somebody who was in the LGBTQ community, they were very eager to talk about the, about the topic. And in talking about the topic, often just listening to them, they would shift their attitude or just a little bit in the conversation. They would change their own mind because you were holding space for them to think about it in a way they had never thought about it before. So, it's odd that you you, know, you could reduce some of these steps, some of these techniques down to just two steps. The first one being build rapport, and the second one being hold space for the person to work it out. But the the building rapport stage, I just want to acknowledge a huge caveat. I understand anyone who listens is like, uh, I don't want to talk to somebody in QAnon and give them, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to go to the reptilians. I don't want to talk to somebody who's in a, a racist or a anti LGBT community and give them space. I don't want to talk to a white nationalist who uh was like, man, I wish I'd been there on January 20th. I could have really caused a ruckus. I don't want to give that person space to work things out. I totally understand that. Um, I just wanted to acknowledge that these techniques do work and they work because that is so difficult to do in one way. That person is expecting you to to come in hot and they're ready for it. And they're like, I can't wait. They're like that person who walks around behind in the in the bar around the pool tables, they can't wait for you to bump them. And that's what they're looking for. And when you don't and you start opening space for them, it's an incredible that that person starts to shift their own attitudes, even if you don't do much work. So I just wanted to put that out there as a caveat. I totally understand when people want to push back against the idea of offering uh building rapport, with those with which we don't just disagree, but the disagreement is over us. You know, that's a really important part of it.
0: Yeah, 100%. And I was uh, smiling smugly throughout what you were saying, <laughs> because uh, <laughs> you know, this, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm upset that we did not cross paths early, earlier because you have given were like voice to some of the things that I felt like I had to create from scratch for my book and I was like man David said it more eloquent than, <laughs> than me so I'm a bit annoyed on that part but you're absolutely right because when it comes down to what it takes to build rapport like the skill set behind it everybody has what it takes to effectively build rapport it's mm-hmm. not hard for us to build rapport with people that we agree with people that we like we we do that naturally but the thing is when you're having one of these really tough conversations and you're trying to change somebody's mind on something that is very, very important. You talked about the social issues. My upcoming book is how to have difficult conversations about race. Could be mm. a difficult, just any type of negotiation we're having where it's a big deal for me. There's a lot on the line, a big deal for you. There's a lot on the line. And it feels like our our, our goals are antithetical to each other. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that The major barrier that we will face as individuals really comes down to the fact that in the moment, we will not feel like doing what we need to do in order to establish rapport. It's not Mm -hmm. that we don't know how to do it, it's that we will have some emotional resistance to doing it in the moment because we don't feel like they deserve it, whatever the, the fact might be. So in order for us to be able to actually execute on this, we have to get in the right mindset. And so based on on your research how can somebody get to that point where they're willing to to make that emotional sacrifice to hold space and build rapport with somebody who has beliefs that you might find immoral or improper
1: i feel you completely on this it's a very difficult question and i i have to always lean on the expertise of those who've gone before in this world and that the the incredible people at the Los Angeles LGBT Center, the Leadership Lab, Dave Fleischer and his team, who developed deep canvassing over time, they, because they, they once they had developed deep canvassing to discuss uh, the same-sex marriage was the original topic, then they moved on to talking about transgender rights, and then race, and then so on, and then moved into the la- the last presidential election. They had to acknowledge they had to have something that called cognitive empathy, which is a little different than regular empathy, in that, and I talked about this at length in the book by using uh, the dress as the example to get you there, but the which is a long topic, the dress that some people saw as black and blue and some people saw as white and gold. The the short version of that dress story is the reason people see that differently is because they've been They've spent either spent a whole lot of time in their lives around things that have been overexposed in sunlight, or they spend a whole lot of their times uh, time in their life in, in, around things that have been overexposed in artificial light. And sunlight is mostly in the blue spectrum, the the sky blue spectrum, and then uh, artificial lights mostly incandescents mostly in the in the yellow side of the spectrum. So that photograph is completely ambiguous how it's lit. It's, But it is overexposed. And the brain will go, okay, I know it's overexposed. I want to reduce the overexposure so you can see it better. I'm going to assume it's overexposed in sunlight if I've had more experiences in my life around sunlight. I'm going to assume it's overexposed in artificial light if I had more experiences in my life around artificial light. It is all of that without your knowledge. All you get is the outcome of all these processes. That's what arrives in consciousness and if it wasn't for the fact that social media is social people who saw the dress differently might not know they saw the dress differently that's why it became so like viral because people are like what do you, what do you mean it's, it's black and blue are you nuts I'm looking at it I am looking at it I have no choice but to see it the way I see it and then other people the, and people who saw it the the other way were like what do you mean it's white and gold I have no choice but to see it the way I see it you're asking me to deny the truth of my eyes what they were unaware of were that you know there are these process, there's all these things that take place in the domain of visual priors that lead us to disambiguate the ambiguous in a, in a way that makes sense to us but you're never aware you're disambiguating the ambiguous because it never seemed ambiguous to you in the first place because you only get the result of the process there was a model for this in in um uh neuroscience called surfpad and the surfpad model is substantial uncertainty in the presence of ramified or forked prior assumptions will lead to substantial disagreement. It's a very fancy way of saying, uh, when you don't know what you don't know, you see what you expect to see. Uh, when you, when you when you encounter something ambiguous, you would disambiguate it based off of all of your previous experiences. And I'm talking everything, the way you've visually, mentally, emotionally, the way your culture has shaped you, the, lack of experiences that you could have had all those things when you're in a moment of uncertainty or ambiguity will cause you to resolve it by leaning on those priors and the person on the other side who's doing that may be doing it with a completely different set of those things and you both arrive at what feels like the truth but you don't realize there could be a different version of the truth until you meet someone like that so all of a sudden this person isn't actually a great is a grand opportunity for you to notice this like you could step off of that and go hmm I wonder why we see it differently. Because you can imagine an argument with the dress. If two people are like, I have to convince you that there's only one way to look at this. What you're actually doing is denying yourself the opportunity to understand why you disagree. You're denying yourself the opportunity to see why you even see it the way you see it in the first place. The only thing, if you enter into a debate frame over something like that, the person who wins the debate is the person who learns nothing. And if you want to win that argument, all you're going to win is that is assurance that the way you see it is flawless in some way so i say all that as to to answer your question that at nyu where they developed this surf model they discussed this concept of cognitive empathy which is different from the empathy in the sense that it is exactly what Dave Fleischer and his team at the LGBT Center of Los Angeles were trying to get across to me is that they had developed that as well independently, that they started to recognize that these sexist, racist, homophobic people were experiencing what felt like the truth to them without their knowledge that they were disambiguating it in any way, and that they had been influenced in any way, that they had any kind of received wisdom. It did feel to them in the moment that was just the outcome of the processes in their brain. And they looked at it more as an opportunity. It's like, I can step in and give them the, the chance to see for this for the first time and generate an opinion on this matter that is, it's okay if at the end of this conversation, they, disagree, they 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 have an opinion that isn't mine or they we disagree, but I want to give them a chance to actually form their first true opinion on the matter. And so that's how they developed their deep canvassing technique is... I'm going to give this person a chance to see that it could be seen. Not only can this be seen differently, but the way you see it is influenced in a certain way, and is motivated by certain things. And I'm going to do that in a way that doesn't generate any kind of um, resistance and reactance. And you'll get a chance to evaluate: How do you feel about this? How do you see this? Does this align with your values? Like they give people, they're actually giving people a, a a service in a way, and that's how they reframed it. To that's how they were able to say, "I can be empathetic." I can be cognitively empathetic with this person without being okay with how they think or feel about this issue. And in so doing, I can offer them a space to, okay, I'm giving you a chance to form your first true opinion about this. And if at the end of that process, your, your true opinion is, Oh, I still hate you. Then I'm like, all right, fine. We, we, I walk away and you, that's how you are. But I gave you the opportunity to, to feel differently and they have an enormous rate of success with this. People almost never do that. they, they, uh, I, I've watched so many other videos where you could, t- if you, if it's like, if you, uh, you probably experienced this where you ask somebody, uh Hey, what do you think of the, uh, I'll use the movie example again. Like, Hey, what'd you think of the movie? It was great. Like, what did you like about it? Like, oh, this, 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 I mean, it wasn't so much good here and you can hear somebody like working it out and he could, <laughs> at the end of it, they're like, well, I guess it wasn't that great. If you had like a little YouTube slider for your friend, it'd be like, it was great. Well, I guess it wasn't that great. It was great. I guess it wasn't that great. Like giving people space to introspect in that way often gives them a chance to form an actual true opinion. The knee-jerk response is rarely the actual thing that they would feel if they took a chance to to look at it. And a lot of these persuasion techniques, that's almost all there is to it. You're giving a person the opportunity to truly introspect, metacognate, and evaluate in a way that gives them a chance to go, okay, well, this is how I do feel about this issue. It turns out I was parroting someone. I was, uh, I was, I was repeating received wisdom. I was trying to fall in line with a, with a social group that I was worried about becoming ostracized from. It's, it's really astonishing that if you see it in that way, it starts to become a lot easier to approach the people who truly wish to do you harm or, or, or hate you or look down upon you or hold some sort of, opinion about something that's poisonous to the world that could cause you know from climate change to flat earth like it gives you a chance to say okay what i'm offering this person is not the kind of empathy that goes along with we're going to be chummy chummy friends friends after this it's a chance for you to actually reevaluate how you see this for the first time and i can do that by holding space for you
0: oh there's so much good here and uh so i'll give some i'll start off with some quotes for for a i that jives completely with what you're saying so our motto is we believe the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations goes in line That's good. with, That's with good what stuff. you're saying this is yeah, a pin that it, i'm writing that down with <laughs> yeah, i'm glad you like it i'm glad you like it because again we're seeing that there's something bigger that we're moving toward it's not just the conversation there's there's something more and i love the fact that we talked about the mindset because that changes the whole way you approach it because if you say uh, this is a fight between good and evil, then uh, amongst other things, it makes it much diffi- more difficult. It makes it impossible to to establish rapport. You can't establish rapport with somebody who you think is, is an enemy who's evil. I mean, that's, that's hard to do, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then when you think about the mindset too, just saying, hey, this is a service. Okay, cool. So if I don't see you as an enemy. Oh, that helps me to, to maintain my emotional stability throughout the interaction. And I'm not running so hot. So I can actually stay in the conversation a little bit longer because at least in my experience, if I'm very, very emotional, then my patience goes down. The like the amount of time I can allocate high level focus and stay in the flow state is very low in that. So it's, it helps me to be in a better mindset. And then also saying, if I'm here for you, a service for you essentially almost like therapy light to a certain extent, allowing it you is, to yes, wrestle with these. Yeah. So I'm giving you space to wrestle with this. Again, it changes the way that I show up in this conversation because I'm working with you and you talked about introspection and giving them the ability to metacognate. And so metacognition is thinking about thinking. And so you're, the person is not going to feel comfortable doing with doing that with you unless they feel safe. Again, they exactly. need to be vulnerable with you in that moment. And if they think, okay, during this process, I'm going to contradict myself a number of times. And that's one of the things that's really interesting about human cognition. We're just filled with contradictions. Mm-hmm. And so in that process, I think of myself in these difficult conversations as I'm I'm not kwame. I'm not your friend. I'm not your enemy. I'm your, I am your internal voice. And I'm helping you think through this in a way that you haven't thought through. So those quiet conversations you should be having with yourself late at night as you wrestle with these existential questions of humanity that you haven't mm-hmm. done, I'm here with you. I'm going to help you think through that. I'm going to be your internal voice you know, and and it helps them to wrestle through that. And a mistake that people often make at this stage early, because again, what we're doing is we're just building rapport, giving space, and allowing them to come to the conclusion themselves. People like to jump in jump and jump in on those contradictions, tell people where they're wrong, mm-hmm. those type of things. You In giving them space, you're, you're letting them say what they need to say and then giving them space to explore that themselves. And likely, if you ask the right questions in the right way, give enough time, then they come to a different conclusion themselves. And it goes back to, I think it was the book by Lax and Sabinius, um, Negotiating in 3D. They described negotiation as the art of letting them have your way. So you sit back and it's you good. let them turn turn the, the tables on themselves, <laughs> and they say, "You know what? David didn't change my mind, but after talking to David, I started to see the world a little bit differently."
1: That's right. You're you're, you're nailing it all the way because this is one of the most important principles of therapy. Like I was astonished at how many of these uh, persuasion techniques were very similar to motivational interviewing, um, which is one of the most robust therapeutic models. Um, in motivational interviewing, a person comes in. It, it, it was it was study first it was for the for alcoholism it was mostly directed at alcoholism, but it's used for a variety of things today. But the person usually comes in; they have a change they want to make, uh, but they keep returning to the behavior they would like to extinguish, and therapists were noticing that they were they kept somehow in the conversation the person would leave more likely. To do the thing they came to therapy to stop and they started studying well what am i doing that's causing that to take place and they started calling it the writing reflex which is what you were just talking about the the person comes in and says i i, I want to stop this behavior but i keep wanting to do this behavior and then the therapist will say well, you know what your problem is you need to blah, blah 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 and the person's like they turn and go straight to the teenager mode it's the reactants you know they're like oh now you're telling me how to live my life uh there's a you know, exploit of exploit. So even though they came there for somebody to tell them how to live their life, they couldn't get over the fact that it's a it's like being burnt by a stove. This is something that the body responds to physiologically. It's in our makeup. We are we evolved to push away from stuff like that. Reasonably so, because we we're just like, oh, this is the unhand me you fools feeling, you know, because what's the next thing <laughs> that I ask? What's the next thing that I asked you to do? That eventually, you know, I'm, you know, in their basement. I don't want and like they're feeding me oatmeal. I don't want this. This is so it's good to stop here. You know, this is stage one of that. this that's how we react to it. But the the what they started doing instead was uh something that's in all the persuasion techniques that I that I researched. Most of them have a couple steps, a lot of them have steps before this, but they they get here very early. Um the uh street epistemology is mainly about questioning people's fact-based beliefs. It's very subtle it's something like uh you know, is the earth flat? Is karma real, things like that. Whereas deep canvassing is much more attitude-based, like how do you feel about same-sex marriage? How do you feel about critical race theory? That sort of thing. And smart politics is is basically is almost always about things that have already become super, super polarized. Um, topics that have become so politically charged that people feel an inclination to react to it a certain way, just hearing about it for a second. But they all usually arrive at like in in motive in street epistemology, they ask for a very specific claim to get to the next step. And then in uh deep canvassing though, they typically uh jump right in. And and this is I'm saying all this to get to the, the step that if I were, if I were going to reduce these to two steps, there's build rapport, but then the next step is this beautiful framing. And I have used this so many times and I love it. You if it's a very broad topic, you you can talk about a person's intent. So if it's like uh let's say it's uh who they're going to let me let me rephrase that um if you can think about the person's intent so if it was like uh vaccination you say how likely are you to vaccinate the futures that's a good way to do it if it's a very broad topic um if it's something more specific like is the earth flat you can just say like what is your specific claim when it comes to that and you can get something kind of carve something out of it like the idea, the belief that the earth is flat is actually can be divided into a thousand smaller beliefs that are foundational to that belief. Either way, you want to get to this step of, and we can use my movie example again, which is, okay, so Top Gun Maverick, you know, if, if you were to like give that a number, like like a, you were a movie uh, critic, like zero to 10, what would you give it? Uh, most people can very quickly land on a number. They'll say something like, uh, you know, I'd give it like an eight, maybe seven or eight. Like, okay, let's say eight. Why does that number feel right to you? Now, all these persuasion techniques have some version of that where they ask people to quantify it in some way, which gets you out of the yes, no, for, against, is good, is bad binary dynamic. And it makes it very difficult for you to go into the debate frame because. Now we're in some other frame. This is a frame where I'm asking you, "How do you feel about this?" And I'm not even suggesting that you're right wrong. I'm not suggesting I'm going to even counter you. I'm like, "Yeah, why would you give it an eight? What do you think about? Like, when does that feel right to you? And you can a person will start to, and you can do this to yourself. Like, well, and then they'll start producing reasons. And this is one of the most important things I have in the book, which is I talk. There's several chapters before this where we talk about the psychology of reasoning, which is you know my deepest obsession. It's important to note that in psychology, reasoning is not the same as in philosophy or in logic, or the big R reason, where we're talking about propositions and, and uh, something along the lines of something you might learn about in a philosophy class or a debate class. In psychology, reasoning is coming up with reasons for what you think, feel, and be believe. And usually they're in the form of justifications and explanations. That's all based on something called the interactionist model, which I go into really deeply in the book. Is We, we, this evidence suggests that we evolved to produce arguments using one set of cognitive mechanisms and evaluate arguments using a different set of cognitive mechanisms. And we tend to produce the most lazy and biased argument we can up front. And then we depend on the conversation or the interaction with other people to uh, offload the cognitive labor to sorting out what's the best argument in the pool. Um, You can imagine it's like uh, three different people uh, on a hill like we imagine three proto humans on a hill looking in different directions and um, they're trying to make sense of, should we go down and should we go hunt somewhere? And each person has a different view of the world. And so they uh, already have a different perspective that they can offer to the other two. And they also have different experiences going into the situation where one person is like, I don't think we should go hunting down there because there might be bears down there. But that's because you know, they were attacked by a bear when they were four years old. And there's another person's like, "Oh, I usually, I, I would love to go down there. I would love to go uh, hunting in that region." Uh, but this person's 18 and they've never they don't have a lot of experience, right? But they've they know uh, they they say they've never been attacked by a bear. And then you're in the, you're in the, the third person. You're like, okay, well, this person's all the way this way and this person's all the way this way, but they are offering good advice, which gives me an opportunity for me to make an even better decision than I would on my own. And I can offer something the pool. So there's a lot of evidence that goes into this. This is there's a great literature into this. There's a book I recommend everyone get called The Enigma of Reason by Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber, which goes deep into the interactionist model. And the research is really clear on this. People will uh if you give a person a chance to like answer a very difficult question and uh you show their answers to them and you (laughs) trick them into thinking that their answers are somebody else's answers. Um, When it's their answer, they'll defend it to the death. But when they think that it's somebody else's answer, they'll see all the flaws in it. And some of the most recent research to this, they have people uh, put on VR headsets and they walk into a room and there's Freud is sitting there in VR and they sit down in front of Freud and Freud's like, tell me what your problem is. And they tell Freud all their problems. And then then it reboots. And you are Freud, and you see yourself walk into the room and sit down in front of yourself, and you hear yourself tell yourself all of your problems. And they have a more than 70% success rate of people having breakthroughs with just this one experience of going, I actually hear my problem for the first time. It's very, it all goes back to the production of arguments is different from the evaluation of arguments. And the part of that is when we are, producing our reasons for what we think, feel, and believe. We're producing them for an assumed audience of evaluators. And those evaluators that we presume are going to be people who are in our trusted peer group, and we don't want to look like an unreasonable person to them. And so we try to come up with the most just, we try to justify and rationalize everything in a way that that presumed peer group will go, okay, that seems like a reasonable way to look at it. But the only problem with that is that we're very motivated reasoners. And my favorite example of motivated reasoning is (laughs) Yeah. You know when someone's falling in love with someone and you ask them why do you why do you like them? And they'll say, Well, the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they cut their food, this this crazy music they listen to and what they do for a living, all this stuff. And then if that person's breaking up with that exact same person, you ask, Hey, why are you breaking up with that person? They're like, oh, the way they talk, the way they walked, the way they cut their food, uh, this music they listen to, God, the job they do, same same information same facts but they become reasons for or reasons against based off the motivation of the person in the situation that's motivated reasoning in a nutshell so you take all that together and when what you do is you can take this after you've established rapport and the person feels comfortable with you and they feel like it's okay that we're going to investigate this together you ask basically this particular issue we're talking about it could be something like a a movie is a good neutral example but i could talk about you know is the earth flat on the scale zero to ten how certain are you and the person says, well, I'm pretty much like a nine on this one. I'm like, well, how come nine feels like a right number to you? This switches gears for them to they are now in justification, explanation, reason mode, and they're going to start producing those reasons. And this gives you a chance. This is why motivational interviewing is so incredible. Once that person's laid that out, you can then ask, this is the powerful question of motivational interviewing. Let's say you're, you want to, you are looking to help that person change their behavior you know which way to, to ask this but if you're talking about it in a mind change situation with a flat earth they said they were like a nine you're looking for them to go down there into the one zone like you could ask how come you didn't answer 10 and the person must to answer your question produce reasons in the direction of the counter argument and the this will push them closer to the ambivalence the 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 middle ground, which means you probably got to have multiple conversations to continue moving them in that direction. But if they already answer in the level of like a five or a six or something like that, you know, this could be an opportunity for them to go across that line. And that's the power of motivational interviewing is they they learned that that to avoid reactants in the, in the writing reflex, they could ask questions in a way that would get a person to produce their own counter arguments. And that's exactly what you were talking about earlier when you said let them uh, make the make your argument for you in a way. Like it's theirs you didn't copy and paste anything into their brain they wrote those sentences themselves their their own voice they produced those counterarguments and all you had to do was hold space for them to do so and it doesn't feel like there's any manipulation at play because there isn't you only offered a space for a person to produce a counterargument they would have produced if they had had that opportunity before you had walked along you gave them a chance to produce the counterargument and in motivational interviewing, often what happens is they produce enough counter arguments from the position they already hold that it changes the balance. And then they notice that within themselves and they can proceed forward to what change their behavior, but it also works in these um, negotiation persuasion frames as well. And that's, that's why that number um, exercise is so powerful.
0: It makes so much sense, David, this is, this is fascinating. And I, I love, again, that this is, it's so practical. This is something that, Anybody can say, all right, this is a two-step play with motivational interviewing. Okay, so how do you feel about this on a scale of one to 10? Great, all right, why wasn't it 10, right? And then that you just sit back and listen. And that's mm-hmm. really it. Right. But it, it sounds simple. You could tell somebody how to do this. We could have had a 30 second podcast <laughs> saying, well, saying, well, saying
1: the do the real this, techniques but, are like yeah. 10 steps, you know, but those two are a good way to get started. You know, it goes farther, much farther than that. I mean, there are 20 yeah. steps when it comes to building a report and all, but like in uh, in street epistemology, the next thing is like to help them evaluate what what methods are you using to evaluate those reasons and consider them. You know, good reasons. Mm. There's also you can go deeper and deeper and deeper with it. and in deep canvassing, after that, they ask people, "Where was the first time you heard about the issue?" The person's like, "Oh." And uh, people often they're very surprised when you ask that question. Like it's uh, if it feels like transgender bathroom rights. You you would ask like, when "Was the first time you heard about that?" And like it's astonishing to see people go and just that moment where the eyes go up and the 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 breath stops for a second, like, and they will often realize. Oh, this is completely received wisdom, but you don't say you don't say that. They feel that they think that on their right. own, and you can also ask you know they, in deep canvassing they ask them about times in their lives where they've experienced things that would run counter to it. So they start to reveal the person's values to themselves, and they start to the person starts to feel cognitive dissonance and that their values actually are uh, not aligned with the position that they're presenting to you. So it goes deeper. There are many more steps to it, but I feel like. Those first two really open up a conversation space that most of us never offer each other.
0: Exactly. And and that's what I'm saying, because once you understand the rich psychology that substantiates these strategies, it helps you to execute the strategies at a much higher level. I know for me, I, I study this. I wrote a book on this recently, too. And just hearing your your approach and the, uh, the the psychology and the studies that you reference compared in my mind to the ones that I referenced, it's deep in my knowledge, you know, yeah, and yeah. I study this all the time. Right. So I think that's that's why it's so powerful and important to talk about the psychology, because it, it helps us in that way. But then again, it it shows why people still need to take that next step and get your book because there's so much more to this. And that and that's what's so exciting. So uh, again, I, I gotta have a copy of your book. Make the, help me help me get a copy <laughs> yes, of your book. So, we we will let's let's do a, a double book promotion here. That's okay? what we should so do. We have, so we have um how minds change, and then we have how to have difficult conversations about race. And uh so yeah, listeners, I, I I'm pumped to read, to to get through your book too, because I'm I'm already thinking about the second. An edition of my book after hearing what do <laughs> you have to say here so this this is really really great so can you tell the listeners uh, about the book where they can get it and how they can get in touch with you sure, sure sure uh
1: i have two things out there in the world one is uh my podcast you are not so smart comes out every two weeks uh you can find it very easily you are not so smart.com and uh then everything else goes under david and the book is how minds change and there's a page there with all sorts of stuff i keep adding to it like i've got a nice three hour almost three hour round table video with me and some persuasion experts that from the book and um conversation guides and all sorts of things like that um so yeah and also photos of like the dress and the other thing i got to hold the dress by the way the actual dress that uh it, I, it was black and blue in person but i've held it thinking Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> the scientist who showed it to me was like, yeah, now you now you're enlightened. Um so yeah, dot and you are not so smart.com. The easiest way to find me and I'm on Twitter is David McRandy.
0: Perfect, David. I appreciate you. And and listeners will have links to the book, uh, David's website, and we'll we'll throw in a link to the dress so you can take a peek and see what <laughs> yeah, it looks yeah. like to you. So David, really appreciate it, my friend. This is really thanks great. so much. It's been a pleasure.